if you can see, yeah. the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11, these and then amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most most blokes, you know, be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These guys are 11. Welcome to their After Podcast. Episode 11. Thereafter podcast. Thereafter podcast. 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 Cortland here, uh, as always, your host, along with my co-host Josh Annemeyer. Hello. We are here to bring you another episode with an incredible guest. On today's episode, we did an interview with Rebecca Sorkin, and it was just amazing. It's so good. Delightful, eye-opening, ear-opening, important, very important uh, for everybody. Yeah, I think I think people are going to really dig this this interview. It uh, dovetailed well off of I have had like so many conversations with people about the Kevin Garcia episode, uh, which is now our most listened to, most downloaded episode. Uh, nice. I think it's just because Kevin's super hot and we have <laughs> their photo on the album art or the, the episode art. It's because Kevin's people, voice is so majestic. Yeah, people people are like drawn to it. So, uh, so but in, in talking with people about the Kevin episode, that was so impactful, triggering, uh, just like... It, it brought so many things up in me. And so this was a nice episode uh, in kind of thinking about that to kind of process through all of the internal stuff that I'm working through as I'm having these conversations and talking to people. And and, and it, it brings up a good point uh, to talk with people um, or, or, or tell listeners that, you know, you and I and everyone who's doing this work is still so much in transition and just constantly reevaluating and changing what we think about things. And that is the practice of doing this is, is it's not about trying to tell people what we've discovered, but it's to discover things alongside people together, you know? That's so, right. I thought, right I thought all the stuff she talked about was, was, was really good. So we'll go ahead and get into it. Uh, interview with Rebecca Sorkin, and then we'll be back for a wrap up afterwards. We are here today for another episode of the There After podcast. Uh, your host, Cortland Coffee here with my co-host, Josh Annemeyer. Annemeyer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have an incredible opportunity to have Rebecca Sorkin on the show today, and she is here with us in the studio on the uh, internet. The internet studio. <laughs> the internet studio. Rebecca, say hi. Hi. Hi, everyone. It's awesome to, to hang out with you guys. Thanks for being on this episode with us, Rebecca. Um, super uh, nerdy question. Any relation to the filmmaker Aaron Sorkin? 
how often I get that question. <laughs> and I'm only so I married into this name, so not by blood, but oh, right on. Maybe maybe some some degree back. I I uh, just actually watched his movie, uh, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, last night, yeah. and I was like, oh, this is a this is awesome. And then here we are today. It pops up, yeah, I know <laughs> everywhere. Well. We uh, we we originally uh, reconnected again. Uh, Rebecca, you and I met each other through kind of a ministry church thing here in Denver uh, a while back, kind of sporadically. It was something that I was kind of attending every now and again uh, as I was kind of flailing about post uh, ministry life, uh, and it was something that you were kind of uh, somewhat loosely involved in. Uh, and then since then. Uh, we've just been Facebook buddies and you reached out and, and we're saying that, uh, you know, a lot of your work as a therapist is working with people who are going through or processing through maybe religious trauma coming out of, you know, some type of maybe abusive religious situation, uh, or faith system. Can you tell like maybe us a little background about your work professionally, um, in that area to kind of get us some, uh, starting point? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, I, I grew up in the evangelical church and, um, you know, not so connected, but then ended up going to school and became really interested in working with people and, um, became a therapist. And for the last few years, my practice has focused more on working with people and the treatment of uh, PTSD and complex trauma, um, and attachment theory. And so really a lot of individual and relational work and in kind of working through my own process, leaving the church and, um, getting a little bit further down in my own journey of that. I think that has opened a lot of doors for me really wanting to work with people more in that context of their own process of leaving or just kind of reconfiguring what that space in their life was going to look like and how it was going to really fit with who they are. Um, so in the last year or so, my practice has taken more of a shift and focused more on working with people who often also come with, you know, things like PTSD, trauma, depression, um, messy attachment. Um, styles and um, in their own process of deconstructing or whatever you want to call it, kind of reconstructing or reformulating what religious, spiritual, faith space looks like in their life. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, one of the first times I heard about, you know, I heard about PTSD and you know, kind of religious trauma being tied together was through reading Jamie Lee Finch. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with her at all. Are you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and after reading, you know, her book, I, I was pretty surprised that it felt like at least from her assessment, some of these ideas of religious trauma were relatively new or, you know, just kind of being explored. Uh, would you say that when you were, you know, getting into this field of study and, and studying, you know, complex trauma and PTSD was, you know, religious associated trauma or, tr you know, I, I think Jamie calls it post-religious trauma syndrome. 
it, it, was that something that was talked about in the academic world when you were studying? No. And I don't, as far as I know, I know individuals who I think have, um, latched onto that term or that, that idea, but no, as far as I know, it's in like a training school space that is not a thing yet. And I know for me that that was my first exposure to the term um, religious trauma syndrome was through Jamie Lee Finch's book, um, You Are Your Own. But uh, this woman, Marlene Winnell, back in the, yikes, I want to say like 80s, 90s, um, she's the one who coined that term. And so it's been around for such a long time. And I think there's there's actually a lot of, I think, weird tension in the mental health community around seeing spirituality as good and only good. And there's a lot of research to support that people with, um, with some kind of faith-based or spiritual practice, um, it's a huge protective factor. It's a huge strength and, um, it can be a really positive, that spiritual practice can be a really positive thing. I don't think there's a lot of attention given to, or even consideration for like when it goes awry, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. And what impacts does that have? Or when you find yourself in a community that you don't, there's no space for you or that you don't identify with or that doesn't identify with you. Um, what does that do to our sense of belonging and safety and relationships? And so I think even that of just people starting to see that faith and religion and spirituality can be wonderful community giving foundation laying kind of things. And also it can really, it can really mess things up for some people. So I think it is kind of a newer, not a newer idea, but maybe a newer consideration in the practice of mental health. Okay. Yeah. So one of, one of the things that I think might be good to talk a little bit is about like kind of your background. Can you share a little bit more of like maybe your journey as, as much as you feel comfortable uh, as far as, you know, you processing through faith change um, coming from that evangelical space to wherever you're at now? Like I said, as much as you're comfortable with kind of sharing. Yeah, I know. I mean, thanks for saying how much I'm comfortable sharing. I also think it's just really important. Like, I know it's weird to know not that um, any of my clients are listening, but if they yeah. were, you know, like I think it's a weird thing to maybe think that you get an inside look on um, somebody who kind of takes on that role in your life. And also I think it's a really important thing to know that when you are looking for some kind of support, in working through your own stuff that you are working with somebody who gets it to some degree. Cause a lot of, a lot of what's left in this like spiritual religious trauma wake is really, really hard to put into words. Um, so I'd love to share some of my story. Yeah. Um, I was brought up in Minnesota in a very white evangelical conservative family and community. Um, you know, I think I was born on a Friday. I think I missed that Sunday of church. And after that, I think um, I'm hard pressed to think of a time I wasn't at like my family's church or, you know, visiting relatives and at their church or something. So it was just from go a really interwoven part of my life. Um, 
My mom was our pastor's assistant. So she was there Monday through Friday, nine to five as her job. She was on the worship team. Uh, my dad was an elder and a deacon and served on boards. And um, I had two older sisters who were also just as heavily involved. And so it felt like our family was, to me, just again, like woven into the fabric of that church. Like I was there two to four times a week. And during the summers, I, that's where I was hanging out, helping prep for VBS or helping prep for Awanas or stuffing bulletins or whatever. That was my that was my hangout place as a kid um, when I didn't have anything to do. Um, so I don't think I knew. I definitely didn't know that that wasn't other people's reality. Um, I was pretty intense. So I remember like in middle school during lunch, I would, I would, I would recruit any friends that would like listen or that would be willing to hang out with me. And we would, this is embarrassing. We would go to the bathroom, um, connected adjacent to the, uh, lunchroom, the cafeteria, and I would hold little revelation Bible studies and tell all of my closest friends, you know, that you're going to hell and don't worry, I have a way to prevent this from happening. And you just have to say this prayer. And until you do, I'm just going to read to you all the horrible shit. Yeah. It's definitely going to happen to you and your family. Um, and I think I, I had some really good friends. I don't know why they put up with me for so long, but man, they, they were so kind and so patient. Um, so that was like a really regular thing. I was trying to bring them to, you know, like Awanas and then uh, our youth group and whatever. So it was just, it was in every part of my life. And I was just thinking about this the other day and it kind of made me like, okay, thinking about growing up in Minnesota, it's just an Arctic tundra and you don't know, you don't know any different. Like when that's, where you're brought up and where you're born, you don't know that people have summers that last, you know, more than like three weeks. And this is just like the norm. And I think it felt, it felt really similar to like my version of evangelical Christianity, where it's like, there is nothing else. You don't know that there's like a warmer place where people also thrive. There's like a different kind of world where people also like live a different kind of life, but also I don't know, it just looks so different than your reality. And I think I was stuck in this idea that, this is obviously the only way, the only reality. And I just was working so hard to pull people into that one way of being and thinking and believing. Um, so did that. And then around the time I was like 15, we moved to South Carolina, moved around a few times, but oh, that's that different. The South. <laughs> and yeah, then, then came Southern Baptist, culture and Southern non-denominational culture, which is really just the same as evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, and that again, I think was a huge culture shock. Um, but my upbringing in evangelicalism, I think really like laid that foundation for like, there were some things that were different, but that, that bedrock of the extremes, the ultimatums, the inner out, the, you're saved or you're not, um, was already laid. And so it was, a, I think, in a belief, faith, religion perspective, a pretty easy transition of it was just kind of one extreme environment to the next. And 
still just a lot of that mirroring back of like, yeah, this is the way life is. There is no, there's just no other way. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that's interesting is you bring up like kind of that Southern church culture, uh, Southern religious culture. It is interesting to me um, that even people who aren't involved in church who live in those areas tend to have a understanding of the language, you know, to some extent, um, people in the South in comparison to maybe people on the West Coast or people up in the, the Northeast, uh, there is kind of this idea that even people who don't, who aren't in religious community still understand because religious language is so predominant in the culture. Yeah. And so you really feel, growing up where I did in the Midwest, even my friends who were not religious zealots like I was, uh, you know, they still had a framework and an understanding of the language. And so it really made my language for the world feel like the only way yeah. of talking about the world. I think that's so true. I Maybe in, you know, thinking about that, I think that was definitely part of that experience of moving to the South where it almost kind of amplified like that experience I had had grown up, growing up was just even more so, you know, like this idea of church and God and Holy Spirit and da -da -da, like all of that was just on blast in the South. And not that the South isn't like a polite place. It's a very, whatever. Those people are wonderful. Everybody. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, right back in. Um, it's just, it is much more normalized. I think all of that, like everybody to some extent either goes to church or has that framework or it's just so embedded in the culture. Um, whereas you're right, like maybe in the Midwest, it's, I feel like everybody is a little bit more like you do you and kind of Midwest niceties and politeness. And, and in the South, it's the same. It's just, there is that kind of shared expectation or understanding that you have some kind of faith or religious practice. And usually it's some kind of e evangelical offshoot. Yeah. 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 I, it, it, the extent of diversity is different brands of kind of the same thing. Totally. So, so then what was the, what was kind of the next thing for you in terms of your exposure to a different way of thinking after, was it college or? Yeah. Um, maybe like when I was, I well, probably not till I was like 20 or so. Um, even in high school, I mean, yeah, it was just a couple nights a week of Bible study and I was living with my Bible study gal pals and it was still just kind of every, everywhere I turned. And then I went to college. Um, I went away for one year to university of South Carolina and, um, I think there was just a lot of, I really struggled that year with a lot of anxiety and a lot of what now I look back on and maybe want to identify as like some depression or really, I think it was just mostly anxiety. I've never, I'd never experienced like panic attacks or anything like that before. And I just remember there would be these nights of hanging out, you know, on like my friends in my friend's dorm who like had a mixed, um, you know, like there were males and females in the same building. And oh my gosh, that was like, challenging for me to accept and so I just remember like we would have movie nights and there were guys and girls in one dorm room and I sat there in just like sheer overwhelming panic of like this isn't right like nobody has a bedtime nobody's gonna kick us out we're watching movies there's cursing like all of this just felt very like I can't get my mission accomplished here and nobody's here to listen to that and so like what are we doing 
And that felt really overwhelming and terrifying. And so that was a year of, I think really just more so me wrestling with like, I don't even think so much of like holding on to the truth or whatever I thought the truth was, you know, from an evangelical perspective, more so of just, I was realizing that like, I didn't fit in, that these people were wonderful and that I was like super into just all these different facets of humanity that I was getting exposed to, even just by hanging out with girls and guys at the same time in an unstructured environment, that that was like big deal stuff. And that there was so, I just watched people like have a good time. And I knew that I didn't quite know how to do that yet. And I think there was just this more of like this internal tension for me of like, I want that. Like, I want to be able to find community with people that are not just here to learn from me or that I'm not trying to convert. And I have no idea how to make that happen. And I think even looking further back, there was like sometime in middle school too, or and this just kind of plays into, I think, what I do now, but um, some self-harm and a lot of anxiety back then, too. And I, I think that was more of like having more perspective now to be able to say, I think I was way more at war with the foundation of evangelicalism before I even knew. Like that war got turned in on myself of like, I was bad. I had this sinful nature. I was testing and breaking all these rules all the time. I deserved a lot of punishment and a lot of correction. And to be able to, I don't know, to start that process of like, I started seeing people who didn't live that way. And that was really exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that exposure in college, I think was really important um, and impactful and helped me change that, that focus of like that internal shame and blame and guilt to maybe this just hasn't been working for me for a really long time. And maybe that, that unease is really trying to, it's a good thing. It's helping like to try to motivate me out of this space that feels so restrictive and so punitive. And if you don't know there's anything else, then I think the only option you have is to turn that, that shame and guilt in on yourself and to say like, well, you obviously need more correction. You need to be listening to the Holy Spirit more. You need to be in prayer more. You need to be in a faith-based community more. You need to be doing all these things instead of, there's just a really important message here. And it's to like, listen, and it's okay to relax. And the world is not out to harm and hurt you. It can be a safe place. And once it gets to be safe, then you get to experience relationships in a really new, exciting, different way. Mm. So long story short, college (laughs) was helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. One of the questions that I, that, that I had, and maybe we're going to jump ahead here and we can jump around and that's fine. Uh, But, you know, for me understanding, uh, which I'm just starting to really learn about, you know, the impact of trauma and, you know, Josh and I were kind of talking before uh, the interview about how, you know, for me, I never really saw trauma or thought about trauma as something that was, it was either something that was like very kind of ambiguous and undefinable, or it was like, you know, ER trauma, like getting your leg cut off by a chainsaw uh, or something, you know, something severe and physical. Um, And just recently, I've, you know, started listening and reading and hearing people talk about trauma as this like physical reality that then I'm identifying in myself uh, that 
really, really physically affects me at like a biological level uh, in terms of how I think about things. Can you maybe talk a little from your experience about, you know, about that and, and maybe help people identify some of that uh, themselves? Yeah. 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 Um, so trauma, first thing I'll say about that is just trauma is subjective. Um, it has everything to do with the individual who's experiencing that situation. Um, and that's because trauma originates in our nervous system. And so it has everything to do with how an individual is wired and the different protective factors they have and the different, um, kind of ways of moving through that traumatic experience has a lot to do with how it registers and gets stored in our physical body. So, um, Trauma happens when we have an overwhelmed nervous system and our amygdala, this little um, almond-sized part of our brain on our near our, um, our brainstem, it's one of the first things to develop, um, is really sending off those warning signals. And that usually for us looks like fight, flight, freeze, fawn kind of activity. Um, and when your amygdala is lit up, um, there's something that this guy, Bruce Perry calls the amygdala hijack. And what happens is just when your brain is in this kind of like survival mode, there are certain other parts of your brain that really are not required as much to get you um, through that kind of experience. So we don't need our frontal lobe as much when we're just trying to survive. So our frontal lobe, the most advanced, you know, like A plus B equals C, cognitive, reasonable, uh, reasonable, rational kind of part of our brain. You don't really need that to be online when you're just trying to survive. So when your amygdala is all fired up, um, usually there's some kind of somatic physical response. And so some people like traditionally might think of like sweaty hands or a, a quickened heartbeat or um, racing thoughts, things that kind of come along with what People might think of like a panic attack being like to any, you know, even lesser degree. So the resolution of trauma, like when we think about animals in the wild, there's this amazing, um, there's an amazing book called Waking the Tiger. And it's all about like, you know, why animals don't experience or store trauma in their bodies like humans do, that there is a resolution to this kind of traumatic event that they go through, like being hunted or being preyed upon, or like, you know, we don't have, we don't look into the wild and see all of these like traumatized animals. And obviously there are, we have more developed complex brains at work, but really the point is that when we don't have a way of our physical body releasing that, that fight, flight, freeze, fawn activity, it goes somewhere it stays in our body. And so, you know, there's also kind of like a consideration for PTSD, which is, you know, the kind of symptoms that manifest after a usually like a single traumatic event versus complex PTSD, which can be multiple, multiple or sustained trauma over a period of time. Ultimately the, the result in our physical body can be really similar. And so, you know, I think Jamie Lee Finch talks a lot about this in her book too, just about how chronic illness, disease, um, obviously like things like depression or anxiety are these sometimes states that our physiological body can get stuck in because there hasn't been a resolution to the trauma that it's experienced. And so 
that's where I really believe in like some fucking therapy or <laughs> whatever that might mean. Um, that can be like getting out into nature. That can be something like EMDR. That can be talk therapy. That can be whatever connects with your physical body and your experience meeting that need of resolution. Without it, we see things like like avoidant behaviors, like you know, avoiding triggers or things that remind us of that traumatic event, or um, yeah, physical manifestations, um, numbing, physical, emotional numbing. That can be like obviously drugs and alcohol. It can also just be like dissociative behaviors, like mindless scrolling, time passing, and we all do this to some extent, but really like checking out um, in order to avoid a traumatic trigger or reminder. So I, trauma lives in our body no matter what. Um, and I think that is sadly, I think a really maybe neglected part of PTSD, um, and just trauma treatment is the role that our physical body has to play in that kind of resolution for things like when I think of like spiritual and religious trauma and how that registers, there's not enough research on it. And I think there's a lot of research to be done. Um, Jamie Lee Finch did a really interesting um, just personal study about um, women and chronic gastrointestinal um, disorders and even with a evangelical background and how it presents for a lot of women and GI upset stomach um, chronic discomfort and why that is. I think that's what we need more research on, but I think there's a lot of educational guesses we can make. And for men, I I, th- I guess I, and there's not such a hard delineation between men and women, and that's not the only thing that exists either. But for people that identify in different ways, I think maybe that can also look like anger issues or, you know, being more reactive and people tend to, you know, have, I think, reactions that are either more expressive or more repressed. And so the flip side of maybe that anger can also look like depression or that internalized um, lack of resolution to that trauma. It really does. It starts with the body. Um, On the, on spiritual trauma, religious trauma, what are some of the common things that happen on a day-to-day, week to week basis by people in our lives um, that are like spiritual mentors or uh, leaders that people experience um, that sometimes we just sort of brush off, you know? Um, We don't take it too seriously. We think, oh, they're they're just being, you know, angry or, or something like that. And we just, we don't take it too seriously, but those things compound, um, to form into abuse or trauma. Like how do we, how do we recognize those? And, um, for example, uh, back in our days, me and Cortland, um, (laughs) of our, our spiritual abuse, uh, when we were being traumatized on the regular, Mm -hmm. um, I, I became a type one diabetic, which was like, it's a genetic thing. It's a, it's a disease. Um, but I was blamed for doing it to myself because I didn't have enough faith to, you know, not get type one diabetes. (laughs) 
fuck? Yeah. That, hmm. first of all, that's so shitty. And I'm just, yeah, my heart goes out to you. Um, I guess it can look a million different ways, but I think the the common thread that I look out for and have reflected a lot on is are the people in your life supporting you and trusting yourself? And I know that that is a, it's a big no, no in evangelicalism is um, we all have this sinful nature that is damning us to hell. And so the last thing you should be looking to or turning to for insight or guidance is yourself. Um, And I think that is one of the biggest spiritual manipulations and ways that abuse can manifest is this constant, what I felt like was constant messaging of you are not to be trusted. Your thoughts, your heart, your body are all sinful and they are the reason you're going to hell. So if you're looking for any safe haven or guidance or direction, it has to be external either in other people that are better, stronger Christians than you are that have a somehow more direct connection to God or God himself somehow getting a direct message um, Mm. through prayer or study or whatever that looks like. I think that is one of the most toxic things. And I think also one of the things that keeps trauma stuck in our body for so long is when there is no, there's no encouragement to say like, what do you, what do you think you need? Here's what's going on. Like, here's what you're able to say is going on in your body, whether it's type one diabetes or cancer or, um, depression or anxiety, any of those things, obviously there are doctors and experts and people like that in our life for good reason. Also, you are your own expert and to be able to sit with yourself and to say like, well, when I feel this way, what I know about myself is that I do really well when I like write or I do well when I sit in silence or I need to be around people or I really don't need to be around people or that intuition is not fostered very well in my experience in a white evangelical faith community. And so I think it does put a lot of pressure on one, the the guilt and shame that if something does go wrong, that yeah, you have, you've done something wrong to make this thing happen. You haven't trusted enough. You haven't prayed enough. You didn't listen to God soon enough. Um, And now you're suffering the consequences of your sinful nature and your sinful body and the sinful world. Um, And what a different lens it is to be able to say, yeah, things things are inclined to break down. And so if and when things break down, whether it's on like a mental, emotional, physical, any level, how do you show up as the kindest, gentlest, most patient, highest level of yourself that you can to know how to ask for what you need and to be that for yourself in the ways that you can be. Otherwise, to me, it is just this constant blind search for like who has the most godly answer. And if it doesn't resolve, then like you're still fucked. You're still the one that isn't doing it right. And there is no escape you know, there was this kind of interesting thing I was reading the other day about how in this evangelical world, you know, they, there's there's a lot of guilt for what you do and there's a lot of shame for who you are and that there is, there's a possibility of forgiveness for what you do if you can 
pray or ask for forgiveness or somehow fix it, never do it again, whatever. But there really is no escape for the shame of who you are because your nature, you're told, is inherently sinful and broken. And if that's your permanent state, where is the trauma supposed to go? Where is those where are those automatic thoughts of like, I'm not enough, I can't get out of this, I'm trapped, I'm doomed, that has a real physical toll on our bodies. And of course, not that we incur any of these processes or I don't know, kind of states on ourself, but I don't know that there can be any kind of real permanent resolution for things like depression or anxiety if we don't include our body as a part of what's been going through this process all along. It's been our heart and our mind, but our body has been with us every step of the way. And so it carries a lot of the burden that we can't day in, day out carry on a mental, emotional level. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean... That's one of the things that as I'm hearing you talking about, you know, what you just said it, it, that that brings me back to something we talked with Micah J. Murray in that episode about when, you know, it feels like there is this kind of uh, gaslighting that's just that is baked in to the fact that you your your body and your intuition and even your mind to some extent is is susceptible to deception. <laughs> by this deceiver, right? That that it's yeah. this is his territory, right? This is Satan's world that we live in. That was the doctrine I was taught, right? Okay. So everything physical is of Satan's domain, of the deceiver. Yeah. And yet you are also held responsible for like then making the right decisions because like we we I can't outside of my physical mind make a decision. <laughs> about yeah. anything. So yeah. you're 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 told that you're incapable of making a good decision and it's your responsibility alone to be able to make deci decisions um to submit to something more godly or or etc. right? Which is so interesting to me because theologically that sounds like the gnostic yeah. heresy, you know? Yeah. So the the, yeah. the gospel writers or the the epistles were talking speaking against gnosticism which is all physicality is evil yeah and yet and yet that was that was you know the that was the doctrine i was taught that yeah. really that is the mind fuck for me that was just like okay i'm incapable of making a good decision on my own and yet i'm fully responsible and if i make the wrong decision i'll burn in eternity so then you're left in this place where there's like no good answer um Tell me, maybe maybe this is way too big of a question, uh, but I would be curious, like, you know, I know the questions that we're getting from a lot of people. And the question that I had was, how do I reconstruct or how do I, how do I pull apart these things that are so tied to traumatic uh, situations and traumatizing uh, uh, feelings? without just throwing everything out, I mean, do you have, how do we pull apart these little things? That's like, yeah, spirituality, uh, benefits me in some ways, but it's so wrapped up in so much trauma. How do I, how do I pull those things apart? And is there a way, how are you seeing people do it? I mean, if, if you had a, like a, like a five minute answer to that question, you would not be on my podcast. You'd be on <laughs> television, national, international television somewhere, but give me your best, you know, kind of take on that. Um, 
Well, I do think it's different for everybody. I think it gets the the ultimate outcome. If there is an ultimate outcome, I think it's something that my opinion is that it's always, we're always in process and hopefully changing and growing. So I don't know that there's like a final finish line that we get to cross. So I think something that um, I try to really have worked with myself on and, um, and I want to help others in their processes disconnecting from that like black and white what does it look like if you're this and what does it look like if you're that and how do you know if this has happened and how do you know if you're like saved or not how do you know if you're a follower or not um it's so much black and white thinking and a huge I think kind of pitfall that I would find myself stumbling into is also even leaving that like authoritarian mindset of the evangelical church is how do I disconnect from even just those pillars of like black and white thinking, whether it's enmeshed with evangelical theology or not. Um, so when I think about like, well, how do you know that you've like deconstructed your faith or how do you know when you've like reconstructed something new or I don't know, I don't know that that's a thing. Um, and I think it's actually a really important thing to be able to just cultivate that practice of being in process and not having a this or that kind of mindset. So I don't even, yeah. Um, what I hear you saying is that, that there's an open handedness that you have to come with to the healing that I think I wasn't told was okay. Like I needed the answer. I needed to arrive. Yeah, well, you always need the answer, right? And like in that mindset, it is like, okay, this is this is who I am. But the other week, I was like thumbing through some old journals from like, no joke, like early middle school, and I was writing about how like I was tired of having answers, and I didn't want to be the person with answers anymore. And like, what if I had questions? And what if I didn't know something? And it's ingrained. I think it's just part of this foundation is like, if you are this evangelical believer that you are saved and that means you get to check certain boxes. And that means that you have, you know, God gives you all the answers you ever possibly could ever want or need in his inerrant, infallible, holy Bible. <laughs> and it is just, it's so frustrating because I think then it just cuts out this whole human development process that we all are entitled to, and just from a developmental standpoint, need to go through of like not knowing. And I think that's where maybe my finish line is not knowing. And that being a really wonderful, way more free place of being than having the answers that even as a little middle schooler, I know felt really constricting and really messed up. And I think that's something that also like in the framework of like how even just working through whether you settle on a faith or religion or spirituality in your process of deconstruction, looking at how, if you grew up in that kind of family, if you grew up in that culture, that black and white thinking, the discrediting the feelings of children, the prayer over parenting, the behaviors being evidence of like a flawed sinful nature, the fantasy of your family has to look a certain way to be considered good Christians. And so therefore you don't get to have certain kind of conflicts. You don't get to have certain kind of relational breakdowns in families, because if you did, 
then you're doing something really wrong. And that's a reflection on this, this parenting family system that's not doing the work of the Lord the way they're supposed to or following the way they're supposed to. It permeates all these different parts of how you learn to navigate relationships. And so in deconstruction or taking another look at that, I think having to go back to how did you learn relationships were supposed to work? How did you learn conflict was supposed to be or could be resolved? Um, what did you learn the the function of behaviors, good or bad, was? Um, and usually it's not through a lens of like natural, normal, human, developmentally appropriate progressions. It is sinful or obedient. And so when we get to be adults and look at that again, I think the openness of being in process with that stuff is in and of itself very foreign. And that open-handedness of like, I don't know. And that's okay. I might never know. And the not knowing gets to be really freeing, but it feels like too much space at first. And it kind of feels like, you, I don't know what to do with this and me and my, my body and my thoughts and my heart. And it, it doesn't have this anchor point anymore. And I think that is really terrifying. Um, at first and maybe for a long time. Um, but doing that work of like, well, what did those structures, what did they, what purpose did they serve and how did they, how did they help and harm? It's not always all bad. We, I think we do walk away from really conservative upbringing sometimes with like certain skills. Usually you're pretty good at maybe telling your story or you have this like, sense of the profound or you're really aware of like broad consciousness kind of stuff. And like, that's not always available to everybody in their upbringing. And so there are things that I think we can walk away from and say like, this was good. I'm going to tweak it. This was helpful. I need to put a different lens on it. This I, I need just to like cut straight out of my life, but you're right. I think like just that open handedness of it, I think is terrifying and also super important. And it's terrifying because it was never, that was never allowed. Mm. Yeah, that's something that we've talked about a lot, Cortland, on this <laughs> podcast is the mystery. Yeah, mystery is exciting, right? And it's a very, it's a very uh, ancient thing. It's a very Jewish thing. Mm-hmm. This idea of mystery and not knowing, and you know, in our Greek mindset, we have to have the black and white. We have to what's right and wrong, and or else if I don't know what's right, I can't stand on anything. Yes. It's really limiting. Yeah. I love, I love that it's the, the thing that is terrifying is also so freeing. It's this, it's this incredible kind of, uh, paradox. (laughs) It's like, which, which for me, like, like when I have conversations about that point for me, I, I, there was like a really particular point of conversion when, I was like, I don't know that I know anymore. And like, I really just accepted that. Um, for me, it was about, you know, the core thing was about the existence of God and and just saying like, I don't believe this anymore. That got, you know, I talked to a lot of my still very religious family and like so much of the language of Christ and the language of like rebirth and salvation to me correlates to that moment 
And so like for them, they're like, oh, this is my salvation experience. And I'm like, oh, let me tell you about my salvation experience, right? My Nicodemus moment was like telling God I didn't believe in him anymore. Um, But it allowed for this like totally new thing to be born. And it like freed me. Um, I am listening to your podcast and a handful of others. I think the thing that I've latched onto a lot too recently is just like um, that idea of making making an idol out of whatever. And if you want to get biblical with it, then great. We're supposed to like knock down our idols and putting God and religion and faith and salvation, whatever that is in a box. um, I think in and of itself is it it's minimizing and, and um, it's just minimizing to everything that I think that like the, the mystery is supposed to serve it. There is supposed to be a humility in this human experience of like, I don't know what's going on. Do you know? I don't know what happens after this. Do you know? Nobody does. And to be able to rest in that, like you can have faith about something you can believe in your heart of hearts. Something is true or not true. That's for everybody to kind of, I think, figure out. Um, but ultimately, I think at the end of the day, if we are the most honest with ourselves, there is this not knowing in a testable, repeatable way. And so, yeah, that's like faith in and of itself is mysterious because there it's not something that gets to be tested and repeated. So to hold on to faith as this thing of total knowing, that's not faith. That's like science and facts and they both serve their place, but to hold on to them with such a, a tight grip of like, you're, you're going to hell and you're going to hell. And if you don't check these boxes, you need a lot of mercy and just hope and prayer and nobody knows. So the freedom of that mystery, I think is so exciting. And I think it opens up a lot of doors for relationships with people without a secondary agenda of just mm-hmm. being this weird process of the human experience and not knowing what's going on and making the most meaning and connection out of it while we can to me sounds way more, sounds a lot more truthful and I can, I don't know, I I can connect a lot more with that experience than even as my seventh grade self wrote in her journal, having all the answers, thinking of all the answers doesn't feel good. There's something Mm -hmm. about that does not ring true. Do you think that as a therapist, when, Cause I can definitely relate to sometimes being in my life. Like, just tell me what to do. Just tell me the answer, you know, what, what do, what's right. And do you think that's based off of a place? Does you think that comes from a place of fear or something else? Maybe sometimes. Yeah. I, yes. I think if there's a list of where that comes from, fear is definitely on that list and high on it. Um, I think also we just, I think as humans, we reach for and seek out predictability and structure. And I don't think that is bad. And I think if we think of kids, um, just in my experience in working with kids and families with a lot of trauma and behaviors coming out of that trauma, a lot of what we talk about is creating the most predictable and structured environment, making the world as small for this little one as we possibly can. Um, Small, safe, predictable, and structured is the thing. And at least it's a place to start. And so I think that that inkling of like 
yeah, we want to plan. Yeah, we want to know what to do next because there is a lot of mystery. There is a lot of unknown. Um, there's a lot of chaos and horribleness in the world. And there's also a lot of good. Um, but to seek out some kind of structure or predictability or like plan, I think is so natural. And I, I think to just say like, you should just be comfortable having no plan, no structure, no idea what's going on. That should just feel good. Like it doesn't. And so it's a, it's a yes. And, you know, I think it's like, yes, the, the work is constantly like the lifelong work is getting comfortable with being uncomfortable in that sense of like, what if you don't know mm-hmm. what do you do with that? And also what does structure and predictability and nurture look like on a day-to-day basis to take care of that part of yourself that doesn't feel good in the not knowing. And to me, I think that usually needs to be rooted in some kind of like relationship with people and people that are safe and loving and remind you that you are safe and loved and right on. Out that gets to be this like freedom to not know other things. If you do know that you're safe and loved, um, I think that can buffer a lot of the the angst of not knowing mm-hmm. other things. Yeah, that's so important. Feeling safe and loved, even when you don't like agree on everything. Make like, me and Cortland, we don't agree yeah. on everything, but like I'll call him. I called him like late up the other night. I'm like, hey man, I don't, you know, and he listened and we, we love each other and it's, it's it's safe, even though we don't agree on everything. Yeah. I, not that this doesn't exist in evangelical spaces, but it was not my experience that you got to come to the table with not knowing and not be met with, well, here's what you need to know. And it's really different, like having, having an answer for somebody versus holding space for somebody. And I think that's what I love about therapy and being a therapist and having a therapist is that you get to hold space and somebody gets to hold space for you. And then I think it sounds super, maybe cheesy. I'm not sure, but I think there's a lot of magic in just being able to show up. And sometimes that is the work of therapy is just like you showing up consistently and allowing somebody to hold space for you. You don't have to know what you're going to talk about. You don't have to know what's on the agenda or what kind of light bulb moments you're going to have. Like, no, the work of it is that you are taking care of yourself by allowing somebody to hold space for you. And whatever you do or find in that space is great. If it's nothing, if it's 60 minutes of like silent crying, that's great. If it's, you can't stop running your mouth because there's just overflowing. Okay. Um, If you need some help being drawn out, no problem. But I think the work of therapy so often is just, or of relationship, of safe relationships, is just the magic of somebody holding space for you to show up with whatever. And they're not being an agenda of obedience looks like this, faith looks like this, um, prayerful submission looks like this. It's just, oh, you don't know? What does that feel like? Yeah. Oh good. Oh my God. I can I just like be with you? What do you need? Can we like maybe just explore? Let's get curious about like what you need. And can I can I do any of that for you? Or how do I help you meet those needs? I mean, that is to me way more empowering than somebody saying, I have an answer. Here's the answer. Yeah. Here you go. Now go do that. Yeah. That's that's incredible. I, I feel like that's that's probably a really good spot to kind of tie things up. I think that uh 
you know, most of our most of our guests have like some type of platform or some type of of uh, way that uh, we're directing people to connect with them. I mean, is that something that you have? Uh, is there a place for people to connect with you, or uh, you know, kind of somewhere where uh, you could, you know, either through your practice or help you know, guide people to practice? What What would you say to people listening who are, have been impacted by by your interview today? Yeah. Um, so my, a couple things. My website is um, Rebecca and it's spelled kind of, well, it's spelled the biblical way. <laughs> it's um, R-E-B-E-K-A-H at branchcounselingco for colorado.com. Um, you can just Google Rebecca Sorkin and it'll come up. Um, also, I'm not the right fit for everybody. And I just really believe in like, if you are looking for somebody that you find somebody that feels like a good fit for you. And there are a lot of really good ways of searching um, for a therapist, if that's what you're looking for. Um, Two places I usually tell people to go is um, therapyden.com. And that's a really cool place to start. Psychologytoday.com is is all right too. Um, It's all about relationships. So if it doesn't, already occur in your life then I think therapy is a really cool place to start seeking out a safe kind of space holding relationship so Rebecca at branchcounselingco.com or google yourself a therapist and start shopping around awesome yeah awesome Josh do you have any other closing thoughts or we that's it thank you so much wow this is so great so awesome Rebecca thank you so much for being here All right, we're back, and a super fun interview, super fun conversation uh, with Rebecca. We really just enjoyed and are grateful for her taking the time uh, out of her day to be with us on the episode. Josh, what do you have to say? I'm about only at sixty percent uh, <laughs> functionality today. Um. Well, we'll just keep it short because I just want people to, you know, maybe maybe after this turn turn this off and take some uh, take some time, take some space, and like think about all the great things that Rebecca said. And uh, here's the thing: when it comes to abuse and trauma, we talk about that in the context of spirituality and religion uh happening but you know it can also happen in places like your work environment um oh yeah it can happen in your family um it's just man there's just so just to be just to be able to um identify those things and and it's so important uh you may not realize it you may not realize that these things are happening. Um, you know, when I was, when me and Cortland were doing our cult thing together, there's so many things that I didn't realize until where I had already left, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are still things on a daily basis that I, (laughs) that I, that I think back to and go, man, that was fucked up. Yeah. (laughs) Hindsight's 2020, man. And you don't realize until you get enough space from it. Um, and so I think that, yeah, you're, you're right that, you know, the, one of the most productive things you can do is just take some space and some time to, you know, have that kind of just open-minded, open-handed approach to thinking back, 
uh, and and realizing that all of these things can be looked at and assessed. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can't look at and go how how is that functional? You know, how is that functional for me or non-functional for me in my life? Whether it be my work, my family, my relationships. You know, we can have toxic relationships that you know sometimes need space, and it's okay to to step back from any of those things um it is okay to say hey i need time and space away from this friend or family member or even work environment you know to to say hey i need it wasn't too long ago that i sat down with crystal my wife and and just said i can't you know i was doing a lot of freelance work and uh, you know, I was like, I'm just, I'm, I'm burning myself out. I need to step back. And she was like, all right, let's figure out how to like restructure our budget and whatever, because ultimately d- you shouldn't be doing anything that's putting you in an unhealthy situation or taxing you to an unhealthy, you know, place. Mm-hmm. So that's right. Um, and we talk about it in the podcast. It's okay to listen to your body, mm, your, yeah. your, your mind and your body and your soul are all connected. Listen yeah. to it. And it is okay to say no. Yep. So whoever needed to hear that today, we're telling you, you've got permission. And if somebody tells you, no, you can't do that, be like Josh and Gordon said. Yep, that's right. I can say Blame no. us. Blame us. Have them email us. D- have them DM-, DM us. <laughs> <laughs> Get in our DMs with how frustrated you are that somebody is asserting their personal space and autonomy. Uh, that's totally cool. We'll take those calls. Uh, just as always, we want to wrap up by saying, uh, if you like the podcast, uh, you know, first and foremost, go and follow and subscribe to the work of our incredible guests uh, because that's what we're here is to really promote what they're doing. Uh, also, if you like it and you want to keep up with it, subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're listening maybe two platforms you know so go follow us on apple Podcasts and on spotify we got twice the chance of catching you when we put out new episodes every tuesday uh and then as always uh you know give us a review uh on you know maybe maybe four stars maybe five stars you really like it uh and and then leave us your thoughts in the itunes apple podcast space we did get a new review since the last time we've recorded and I loved it. They were like, I don't like podcasts. I like this podcast. That was oh, pretty much it. That's and the which, best. I, yeah, I thought that was cool. Uh, it did not have a name with it. They had a pseudonym of some kind. Uh, but uh, thanks to that person who reviewed. Uh, also, uh, we do have this thing in our Instagram. If you follow us on Instagram at thereafterpodcast, click to our link uh, in our bio, there's a place where you can leave us a voicemail. Uh, nobody's done it yet. Um, but yeah, if you want to be on the show, uh, and you have a question, you have something you want to share, we like hearing from your, our listeners. And sometimes it's fun to hear your, your voice, um, and not just getting it in a DM or an email. So that's a way that you can go and record that. And we could even use that on the show. And, uh, have you be a, a, a mini micro guest uh, spot to some extent. Right on. We'd love to interact with you that way. So Josh, anything else before we cue up the rollout music? Cue it up. Roll it out. <laughs> <laughs> Make 
we will catch you guys uh, next week. Until then, you guys stay safe, listen to your bodies, and remember to tell someone about the podcast while you're wandering around out there in the thereafter.